Mockingbirds. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store. Orleans Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron.com. By Birds and Beans Shade-Grown Bird-Friendly Coffee. Birdsandbeans.com. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com. Good morning. Welcome to our show number 625. Spring has really exploded uh, here in the northern part of the U.S., including here in New England, and that includes, of course, spring birds. We heard this one this morning. Just driving in here to the studio. The elegant eastern kingbird. Meanwhile, we have uh, house wrens nesting in our Talking Birds garden right here behind the studio. Well, we've talked a lot recently about the effects of climate change on birds. And the topic can't really be avoided or ignored simply because of the way the evidence continues to accumulate. The latest comes from the Florida Museum of Natural History, where new research confirms what other studies have suggested, that climate change is altering the delicate seasonal clock that North American migratory songbirds rely on to mate and raise healthy offspring, setting in motion a domino effect that could threaten the survival of many of our familiar backyard bird species. The result could be a future much like the one Rachel Carson hinted at more than 50 years ago. Museum researcher Stephen Mayor describes the scenario as being like Silent Spring, but with a more elusive culprit, adding that we're seeing spring-like conditions well before birds arrive and that the growing mismatch means fewer birds, including ones we're used to seeing in our backyards, are likely to survive and reproduce and return the following year. According to this new research, nine species are already beginning to find themselves unable to keep up with the shift. Great crested flycatchers, indigo buntings, scarlet tanagers, rose-breasted grosbeaks, eastern wood peewees, yellow-billed cuckoos, northern parolas, blue-winged warblers, and Townsend's warblers. And although the study suggests that while the majority of species studied have so far managed to adjust their arrival dates, the rate of change could be outpacing their efforts. And how are we humans doing with climate change, and what do we think about it? A new study indicates that we're thinking and worrying about it a lot. Research conducted at Yale University and George Mason University finds that 6 out of 10 Americans are very or somewhat worried about global warming. The survey also found that 7 out of 10 Americans believe global warming is actually happening, while only 13% now believe it is not happening. Some good news in all of this is that Americans continue to support climate action. Surveys show that Americans across party lines back participation in the Paris International Agreement, for example, limiting carbon pollution from coal-fired power plants and using regulations and other methods to limit global warming. Extra, extra, read all about it. Some of the stories and videos we have for you on our Facebook page this week. New worlds. How did birds and mammals become warm-blooded? We'll connect you to the story that may provide the answer. Down at the local garden center, 16 invasive species that we shouldn't ought to be buying. And in his uniquely entertaining style, our man Mike O'Connor of Cape Cod's famous Birdwatchers General Store tells us about his visit to the Summer Lake Wildlife Area in South Central Oregon. 
some of the stories we, and things we have for you on our Facebook page right now. Uh, if, you don't, uh, if you're not a Facebook follower, you can find uh, those stories uh, through an online search. And that's how you can do that. Uh, let's see. Oh, our mystery bird contest coming along a little later in the show. Here's a little preview. And by the way, we have a fabulous prize at one of the favorite feeders, I think. It's the Droll Yankees Observer Window Feeder. Attaches right to your window so you can see the birds up close and personal. Here's the sound of our mystery bird. This is just our preview. It's a small songbird with a brown back, whitish undersides with dark stripes, and a whitish or yellowish eye stripe. Our bird, which breeds across Canada and the northern U.S. and winters in the tropics, is found along slow-moving streams, ponds, swamps, and bogs where it feeds on insects and snails and occasionally small fish while constantly bobbing its tail. That would be uh, some clues there in the sound of our mystery bird. We'll have the contest itself in just a little while. I'll even give you the telephone number so you'll be ready. 781-837-4900, 781-837-4900. We'd like to say hello and thank you to our newest Talking Birds ambassador, Carolyn Smith, down in Silver Spring, Maryland. We're a little envious of Carolyn, who says she had a wonderful birding day in Susquehanna State Park just above Baltimore this week, where she saw and heard 69 bird species, 20 of them warblers. And she's heading to the Maryland Ornithological Society Conference in Western Maryland next weekend and going to watch the red knots and horseshoe crabs in Delaware next week. Carolyn, you've uh, you've got it going on there, and thanks for becoming a Talking Birds ambassador. Talking Birds listeners, will you join Carolyn and 125 other listeners in 39 states by becoming a Talking Birds ambassador? No heavy lifting involved. Just hand out some of our info cards to your friends and associates to spread the word about our show and about birds and conservation. Easy to sign up. Just click on the contact button at TalkingBirds.com and choose the Become an Ambassador option. That's the Become an Ambassador option by the contact button at TalkingBirds.com. Yes, no G in talking. Still to come on our show today, we'll meet the man who saved a population of puffins and did a lot more and still does. Nausea National Audubon's Dr. Stephen Kress will join us here. Plus, we'll get some more backyard birding advice from our man Mike O'Connor in our Let's Ask Mike live segment. And up next, another slightly misnamed bird is today's featured feathered friend. Some people are disappointed to learn that the morning warbler's first name is spelled M-O-U R-N-I-N-G. But not to worry, it's not really sad, as far as we can determine. It gets the name because of the male's gray hood, thought to resemble a mourning veil. As Wayne Peterson and Roger Burroughs point out in their book, Birds of New England, some birders like to remember this species' name by thinking that it's mourning the loss of its eye ring, a good field mark. Of course, the fact that it sometimes shows a kind of broken eye ring might provide something else to mourn about. Along with that gray hood, males of the species sport a black patch in the throat and breast, and both male and female have olive green upper parts, yellow underparts, and pink legs. And as possible further evidence that this bird isn't really in mourning, it sings a bright song like this. 
Morning warblers nest in thickets and shrubs across the northeastern U.S. and much of Canada and spend the winter in the tropics. The scientific name of this bird, Geothlipsis philadelphia, presents another little irony since it's not very common in that city. Philadelphia happens to be where the morning warbler was discovered officially in 1910 by the great ornithologist Alexander Wilson. And considering this species' funereal common name, it's not surprising that a group of these birds is known as a wake of morning warblers. Overcoming its solemn name and singing a cheerful song, it's the morning warbler, Geothlipsis philadelphia. Today's Talking Birds featured feathered friend. Welcome again to our show, number 625. As always, we hope you'll visit our website, TalkinBirds.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at TalkinBirds. Dr. Stephen Kress is National Audubon's Vice President for Bird Conservation and Director of the Audubon Seabird Restoration Program and Hog Island Audubon Camp. He's also a visiting fellow at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and co-author of the remarkable book, Project Puffin, the improbable quest to bring a beloved seabird back to Egg Rock. And he joins us on the phone right now. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Ray. It's great to have you on, Steve. Thank you for being on with us. And uh, expand, if you would, uh, Steve, on that book title and tell us about the project that's been described as a four-decade obsession, Project Puffin. Well, Project Puffin started with the goal to bring puffins back to Egg Rock, I thought it would be a simple undertaking, but it turned out to be a lifelong pursuit. And mm-hmm. messages that I would have never guessed would have come out of it from the beginning. Such as? Well, it's just that I hope that we could sort of reinsert this lost species back into the ecology of the area. Mm-hmm. People had hunted them till they were gone by late, about 1885. And I set out to try to bring them back, hoping that I could create something that would be self-sustaining and and live on. And I thought there'd be a time when we could walk away from the project, but now I realize we have to be part of that project. Because the island, Egg Rock, is not really an island. It's connected to everything around it, the ocean, Mm. the land, the weather, the climate. It is really part of everything. So what happens around it affects what's on it. And that means that the people around it are affecting the island, and I and I have come to believe that we have to be there to help keep those puffins on the rock. Mm-hmm. Well, give us a little bit of a, an idea of how you how you did this, how where you got the puffins to bring back, and and uh, what the process was. Well, we started in 1973 with six little ten-day-old puffin chicks that we brought from Newfoundland, mm-hmm. and we hand-reared them released them on Eastern Egg Rock. And the next year, 50, and the following year, 100, until about 1,000 puffin chicks were moved from Newfoundland to Eastern Egg Rock. And later, another 1,000 puffins were moved to Seal Island National Wildlife Refuge in Penobscot Bay, mm-hmm. another historic place that people had hunted puffins till they were gone. So you used uh, lots of different methods here, and uh, I guess a lot of trial and error, Steve, with all this time that it took to really make this happen, including use of uh, decoys. That was kind of an educational experience, was it not? Right, Ray. After four years, 
releasing puffins, none had come back. Mm-hmm. And I was really, you know, trying to figure out what was missing here. I was hoping the puffins would remember Maine and that they would return to Egg Rock specifically. So we were sitting there just like waiting, mm-hmm. myself and my uh, summer interns. But uh, by 1977, none had come back. And so I, I came on the idea of using decoys uh, because decoys are used for hunting, but they had not been used previously for luring puffins back to a, a colony to breed. And it was a long shot, but I figured I needed to do something after four years. So there up, went up some decoys, and, and uh, amazing enough, almost immediately we saw puffins standing among the decoys. What's the current status, Steve, of the birds? Now, uh, yeah, in, now, the in current the... status, Ray, is that we now have about 150 pairs of puffins mm-hmm. nesting on eastern egg rock. Mm-hmm. And on the Seal Island colony, we have about 500 pairs. So these are <laughs> two both very <laughs> encouraging success stories that show that people can really make a difference uh, when they set out to do the right thing in the right place for long enough. Mm-hmm. Well, there's another island off the coast of Maine that draws a lot of your attention, Steve. That would be Hog Island, home of the Hog Island Audubon Camp, of which you're the director. Tell us about the joy of birding and other programs uh, conducted there. Well, Hog Island is uh, a 300-acre island. It's a pristine uh, spruce fir forest, and on the tip of the, of the northern end of it, there's a cluster of uh, turn-of-the-century buildings that is the home to the Audubon Camp. That's what brought me to Maine in 1969 to be an instructor there, and I've been part of that uh, illustrious place uh, ever since. Roger Peterson, the famed birder, was the... Uh, first bird structure there and, and a long line of luminaries to the, to the moment. We offer programs that are uh, five-night programs on the island where people stay in our uh, tight, weatherproofed uh, wooden buildings, comfortable beds, fantastic meals are served. But the most amazing thing is that you get to sit down at the table with, with people like Scott Widensaw and Pete Dunn. Mm-hmm. Um, Pete's going to be with us uh, for the Joy of Birding program that starts up the first week of, of June. There's still a few places in that if anybody would like to join us. How do they find out about how to join? Uh, they can go to hogisland.audubon.org, or if they just Google Hog Island, yeah. it'll they'll find us. Pop up. Okay. Well, finally, Steve, you'll be at another famous location in Maine very soon. That would be the L.L. Bean flagship store in Freeport on the first evening of the L.L. Bean Maine Audubon Birding Festival. You'll be there Thursday, May 25th. Give us a quick pitch, if you would, about the talk there and how people can uh, find out how to be there. Well, my talk is about, is is titled Saving Seabirds, Lessons Learned from uh, Puffins. Uh, The Puffins continue to tell us things about the Maine coast, including effects of climate change on the, the water and on the whole food chain, including small fish. So I'll be talking about uh, what the puffins are telling us. It turns out that they're very sensitive indicators to the quality of the water and what's going on underneath the water. Mm-hmm. And this is more important than ever before to, to really understand that you know, it's saving, bringing puffins back to egg rock was relatively easy compared to trying to make sure they have enough food in the water and, mm-hmm. and the water stays healthy not just for them but for every everything and, and everyone because we're part of it as much as the puppets are well if you're anywhere near freeport maine thursday may 25th be sure to 
head for the festival there at L.L. Bean in Freeport and uh, Steve's talk there on Thursday evening. Just a quick uh, plug here, Steve. You have so many things that uh, are on your plate, and one of them I'm kind of connected with as a student of yours in the Springfield Ornithology Program. Can you give us a 30-second overview of that? Well, it just wrapped up yesterday morning after 41 years of of sharing birds of the Ithaca area with people, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology decided that they would put this course online. started last year. We did it again this year. It's extremely popular. So a small uh, registration fee through the Bird Academy of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and you can sign up, for, and you can watch these talks for six months. So you can watch them over and over. They're mostly about identification, but I weave in a lot of... of, of fascinating information about bird biology and ecology. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to give a ringing endorsement of the, for that. Just look up Bird Academy and you can find out all about it and uh, sign up. Dr. Stephen Kress is National Audubon's Vice President for Bird Conservation, Director of the Audubon Seabird Restoration Program and Hog Island Audubon Camp, also a visiting fellow at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and co-author of that wonderful book, Project Puffin, The Improbable Quest to bring a beloved seabird back to Egg Rock. Steve, thank you for your amazing work, and thanks for being with us on Talking Birds. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Coming up here, it's our Mystery Bird Contest in just one minute. Well, Talking Birds listeners, we're getting ready to go to the Galapagos Islands. We'll be heading there in September, and we're inviting Talking Birds listeners to join us for this trip of a lifetime with one of the best small group touring companies on the planet, Sunrise Birding. More cabins have been added, but this trip will be sold out, so don't hesitate. Travel with us to one of the most amazing places in the world, home to abundant and approachable wildlife, including birds that are found nowhere else on Earth, even Galapagos penguins with whom we'll snorkel. They're the islands where Charles Darwin's research led to the groundbreaking theory of the origin of species, and we'll be there during the season when sunshine is abundant and birds and mammals are most active. Galapagos veterans rave about our tour's itinerary. We'll see places and creatures that other tours don't. I'll be your host for this unforgettable trip, along with expert local guides. Please join us. It's easy to find out more at sunrisebirding.com. That's sunrisebirding.com. By the way, we'll be following Steve Kress up to Maine. We'll be up there on Sunday morning, May 28th, broadcasting our show live from the L.L. Bean Maine Audubon Birding Festival. If you're anywhere in the area or would like to head to that area, uh, please come and join us for our live broadcast. That's Sunday morning, uh, May 28th, 9.30 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Here are the Mystery Bird Contest. We're giving away a beautiful Droll Yankees Observer Window Feeder. Let you see the birds up close with an unobstructed view. It holds a couple of cups of suit, uh, suet. That's seed and suet put together. Suet. Just a new, uh, a new feeding uh, item we've just invented here. Seed, fruit, or suet, or mealworms. Okay, let's move on to the sound of our mystery bird. Our mystery bird is a small songbird with a brown back, whitish undersides with dark stripes, and a whitish or yellowish eye stripe. Our bird, which breeds across Canada and the northern U.S. and winters in the tropics, is found along slow-moving streams and ponds and swamps and bogs, where it feeds on insects and snails and occasionally small fish while constantly bobbing its tail. That would be our mystery bird. What do you think it is? If you know, by all means, tell us. 
And if you'd like to take a guess, that's cool, too, because the drawing will determine our winner if no correct answer is received. So take your guess or tell us at 781-837-4900. That's 781-837-4900. The Droll Yankees Observer Window Feeder is our prize. And the number again, 781-837-4900. Meanwhile, we're going to check in with Mike O'Connor. This is the time of year when lots of people are saying, I found a baby bird on the ground in the backyard. What should I do? Mike has the answer. Coming up next, let's ask Mike in just one minute. More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year, illegally. Poaching is just one of the risks animals face at our hands. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor. I grew up in the beautiful rural countryside of Ohio, where animals roamed freely in the open forests. I have a deep concern to help preserve those open spaces for our wildlife friends so they can live and thrive like they used to. Destruction of their habitats threaten their very existence. The best way to protect wildlife is to protect the land where they live. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats, and establish permanent sanctuaries. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Mike O'Connor down there at the Birdwatchers General Store is hearing from a lot of people these days about baby birds in the backyard and what to do about them, and uh, he never grows tired of hearing those questions. Well, maybe he does. Let's find out. <laughs> Good morning, Mike. More importantly, I'm excited about the new food you invented, Seward. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I, I was hoping that? you would stock that and uh, kind of start us off there and... Uh, be a big I think enterprise, right? I think I think we're on to something good. Let's, I think, uh, and fruit. I don't know if you that. caught that. Oh, or we yeah. also had fruit, which is another thing. That uh, <laughs> there may be some spoilage issues with that one, but uh, we're going to work on. We're going to work out the kinks. Yeah, on yeah that. exactly. Yeah. There's so there, uh, I've got a lot of calls. Yeah. And, um, uh, about baby birds. This is the kind of time of the year. I think a lot of people. Um, they're doing landscaping, or they have landscapers come in and, and trim the bushes, and they yes. end up with. Um, a nest on the ground or a storm spring storm comes through and they find baby birds on the ground and what do you do um and there's two things to do first of all uh, a little bit later in the season we see a lot of fledglings on the ground those are the big birds that um get a little bit too big for the nest and they either jump out because they can't stand the, the crowd or they get pushed out by a sibling and those are the birds that are moving around usually you see robins and cardinals on the ground if they're feathered and they're moving the thing to do is nothing. Leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Keep an eye on the kids and the pets. But other than that, the parents will take care of them. They'll continue to feed them. They chirp. It. The babies chirp, and the parents come down and feed them. There's really nothing we can do to just kind of leave them alone and give them some space. If you find nestlings on the ground, those are those, uh, those ugly little baby birds with a few feathers. and Maybe their eyes are closed, but they, they can't move. Those birds need to be put back in the nest. And those usually are the ones that get pushed out when there's some landscaping or a storm blows them out. Find a nest and just put them back. And that old wives' tale, the birds, the mothers smell them, that's just silly talk. Hmm. They don't care. Just put the babies back in the nest. If you can't find, if the nest is also destroyed, get a strawberry basket or a Tupperware container and, and hmm. fill some holes in the bottom. And I had a customer who did that and then zip-tied it back in the area where the, the nest came from and put some nesting material in there, even if it's makeshift, 
and the parents came right back. So get the nest or the babies back up in the nest as quickly as possible. But there's a, there's a time here because those birds are unfeathered and they're not protected as well as the, the you know the mobile fledglings are. So you you got to act quickly, and and hopefully the parents return. Don't disturb them, but step back in the distance and you know give them an hour, a couple hours or so. See if the parents return. More often than not, they will. If they don't return, then the next step is you can't raise them yourself, but run in the house, get online, and punch up like the nearest wildlife rehabilitation organization. They're all online, and and contact them, and they'll take you the next step. You might have to bring them to one of those people that have the facilities and the material and to help the baby birds. All right. You don't want to be doing that thing, bringing the birds in and try to feed them with an eyedropper. Right. Kind of None of that. Yeah. And, you know, I tried it once. I used to regurgitate worms to them, and, and that was just disgusting. No, you really can't. No, never feed them. Never offer them water. Never offer them any food. None of that. No. Get them, get them back to the parents, which is the best thing. And if, there's no, if something happened to the parents and you know the parents aren't around, contact one of these wildlife places. Don't try to do it yourself. Don't try to do this at home, as they say. Yeah, that's right. Or, at worst case, give them some... What was that word you invented? Uh, uh, Suet. <laughs> and and through it. Give yeah. them some of that. Give them that. They'll be okay. <laughs> they'll be fine. Mike, we'll talk to you next week. You got it, man. Mike O'Connor down there at the legendary Birdwatchers General Store, Orleans, Cape Cod. If we continue to consume our natural resources at the rate we do now, by 2050, it could take three Earths to meet our needs. The Earth can't speak up when it needs help, but we can. Be the voice for those who have no voice. Visit worldwildlife.org. We're back here now at the Mystery Bird Contest, and uh, this is the sound of our mystery bird. Can you identify it? Or maybe you can take a guess at uh, what you think this bird is. Either way is okay. Uh, it's a small songbird with a brown back, whitish undersides with dark stripes, and a whitish or a yellowish eye stripe. Our bird breeds across Canada, the northern U.S., winters in the tropics, and it's found along slow-moving streams and ponds and swamps and bogs, feeding on insects and snails and occasionally small fish and sewage while constantly bobbing its tail. 781-837-4900 is the number, and uh, I believe we have Will somewhere in the Dairy State up there in Wisconsin. Good morning, Will. Good morning. Good morning. Whereabouts in Wisconsin are you, Will? By Lake Pepin. It's on the Mississippi. On the Mississippi. On the Mississippi River. Oh, Lake Pepin. Okay, we're going to have to look that up there. Well, what do you think, uh, Will, on the uh, on the old mystery bird contest here? I think it's a northern water thrush. Tim uh, is giving a, a very enthusiastic, silent round of applause there, nodding and smiling, jumping up and down in the control room. And uh, that means it is correct. <laughs> a northern water thrush. See those around Lake Pepin at all, Will? I haven't. Or yes, I think I did see one earlier. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's a cool bird to see. They're bobbing its tail along the streams and such. Well, Will, stay in the line and we'll get your uh, dress and we'll send you that uh, Droll Yankees feeder. All right? All right. Okay. Will, up there in uh, Wisconsin, somewhere near the Mississippi River. The northern water thrush, thanks to its loud call that would sometimes fit in with a kind of a loud city, the northern water thrush was once known as the New York warbler. We had that as a featured feathered friend not long ago and revealed that information. Well, the scientific name of the bird, as a matter of fact, Nova Borosensis, means of New York. 
We're almost out of our time for our show today. We want to tell you about another festival in Maine. Maine is the hot state, it seems, right now for birding festivals. And here is another one to follow the L.L. Bean Maine Audubon Festival that we'll be broadcasting from. One of America's great birding events will be coming soon. It's the Acadia Birding Festival at beautiful Acadia National Park in Maine, May 31st to June 6th for birders of all levels with field trips, workshops, presentations, and a special pelagic seabird boat trip. Find out more about that one at AcadiaBirdingFestival.com. That's AcadiaBirdingFestival.com. I believe we've just about run out of time for our show, and I hope this isn't too confusing to tell you about this other birding festival. Next Sunday, we'll be broadcasting live from next to the Big Bean Boot at the at the uh, Bean flagship store in Freeport, Maine, the L.L. Bean Maine Audubon Birding Festival. Executive producer, Mark Duffield. Our associate producer is Debbie Bleacher. Our engineer is Tim McKenney. I'm Ray Brown. See you next week. Ray Brown's Talking Birds. Made possible by the generous support of the Birdwatchers General Store. Or Lane's Cape Cod. Birdwatchersgeneralstore.com. By L.L. Bean. Inspiring you to get outdoors. LLBean.com. By Celestron. Offering binoculars and scopes for birders of all levels. Celestron.com. By Birds and Beans Shade-Grown Bird-Friendly Coffee. Birdsandbeans.com. And by Chimani. Visiting a national park? Let Chimani guide you. Chimani.com.